0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading two stories from the book, The Junior Classics, Volume 2, Folk Tales and Myths. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The Story of Cupid and Psyche by Thomas Bulfinch. A certain king and queen had three daughters. The charms of the two elder were more than common, but the beauty of the youngest was so wonderful that the poverty of language is unable to express its due praise. The fame of her beauty was so great that strangers from neighbouring countries came in crowds to enjoy the sight and looked on her with amazement, paying her that homage which is due only to Venus herself. In fact, Venus found her altars deserted while men turned their devotion to this young maiden. As she passed along, the people sang her praises and strewed her way with chaplets and flowers. This gave great offence to the real Venus. Shaking her locks with indignation, she exclaimed, Am I then to be eclipsed in my honours by a mortal girl? She shall not so quietly usurp my honours. I will give her cause to repent of so unlawful a beauty. Thereupon she calls her winged son Cupid, mischievous enough in his own nature, and rouses and provokes him yet more by her complaints. She points out Psyche to him and says, My dear son, punish that obstinate beauty. Give thy mother revenge as sweet as her injuries are great. Infuse into the bosom of that haughty girl a passion for some low, mean, unworthy being, so that she may reap a mortification as great as her present exaltation and triumph. Cupid prepared to obey the commands of his mother. There are two fountains in Venus's garden, one of the sweet waters, the other of bitter. Cupid filled two amber vases, one from each fountain, and suspending them from the top of his quiver, hastened to the chamber of Psyche, whom he found asleep. He shed a few drops from the bitter fountain over her lips, though the sight of her almost moved him to pity then touched her side with the point of his arrow. At the touch she awoke and opened eyes upon Cupid, himself invisible, which so startled him that in his confusion he wounded himself with his own arrow. Heedless of his wound, his whole thought now was to repair the mischief he had done, and he poured the balmy drops of joy over all her silken ringlets. Psyche, henceforth frowned upon by Venus, derived no benefit from all her charms. True, all eyes were cast eagerly upon her, and every mouth spoke her praises, but neither king, royal youth, nor plebeian presented himself to demand her in marriage. Her two elder sisters of moderate charms had now long been married to royal princes, but Psyche, in her lonely apartment, deplored her solitude, sick of that beauty which, while it procured abundance of flattery, had failed to awaken love. Her parents, afraid they had incurred the anger of the gods, consulted the oracle of Apollo and received this answer. The maiden is destined for the bride of no mortal lover. Her future husband awaits her on the top of the mountain. He is a monster whom neither gods nor men can resist. This dreadful decree of the oracle filled all the people with dismay and her parents abandoned themselves to grief. But Psyche said, Why, my dear parents, do you now lament me? You should rather have grieved when the people showered upon me undeserved honors, and with one voice called me Venus. I now perceive that I am a victim to that name. I submit. Lead me to that rock to which my unhappy fate has destined me. Accordingly, all things being prepared... The royal maid took her place in the procession, which more resembled a funeral than a nuptial pomp, and with her parents, amid the lamentations of the people, ascended the mountain, on the summit of which they left her alone, and with sorrowful hearts returned home. While Seki stood on the ridge of the mountain, panting with fear and with eyes full of tears, the gentle Zephyr raised her from the earth and bore her with an easy motion into a flowery dale. By degrees her mind became composed, and she laid herself down on the grassy bank to sleep. When she awoke, refreshed with sleep, she looked round and beheld nearby a pleasant grove of tall and stately trees. She entered it, and in the midst discovered a fountain, sending forth clear and crystal waters, and fast by a magnificent palace whose august front impressed the spectator that it was not the work of mortal hands, but the happy retreat of some god. Drawn by admiration and wonder, she approached the building and ventured to enter. Every object she met filled her with pleasure and amazement. Golden pillars supported the vaulted roof, and the walls were enriched with carvings and paintings representing beasts of the chase and rural scenes. Proceeding onward, she perceived that besides the apartment's estate, There were others filled with all manner of treasures and beautiful and precious productions of nature and art. While her eyes were thus occupied, a voice addressed her, though she saw no one, uttering these words. Sovereign lady, all that you see is yours. We whose voices you hear are your servants and shall obey all your commands with our utmost care and diligence. Retire, therefore, to your chamber and repose on your bed of down." and when you see fit, repair to the bath. Supper awaits you in the adjoining alcove when it pleases you to take your seat there. Psyche gave air to the admonitions of her vocal attendants, and after repose and the refreshment of the bath, seated herself in the alcove, where a table immediately presented itself without any visible aid from waiters or servants, and covered with the greatest delicacies of food. Her ears, too, were feasted with music from invisible performers, of whom one sang, another played on the lute, and all closed in the wonderful harmony of a full chorus. She had not yet seen her destined husband. He came only in the hours of darkness and fled before the dawn of morning, but his accents were full of love and inspired a like passion in her. She often begged him to stay and let her behold him, but he would not consent. On the contrary, he charged her to make no attempt to see him, for it was his pleasure, for the best of reasons, to keep concealed. "'Why should you wish to behold me?' he said. "'Have you any doubt of my love? Have you any wish, ungratified? "'If you saw me, perhaps you would fear me, perhaps adore me. "'But all I ask of you is to love me. "'I would rather you would love me as an equal than adore me as a god.' This reasoning somewhat quieted Psyche for a time, and while the novelty lasted she felt quite happy. But at length the thought of her parents, left in ignorance of her fate and of her sisters, preyed on her mind and made her begin to feel her palace, was but a splendid prison. When her husband came one night, she told him her distress, and at last drew from him an unwilling consent that her sisters should be brought to see her. So, calling Zephyr, she acquainted him with her husband's commands and he, promptly obedient, soon brought them across the mountain down to their sister's valley. They embraced her and she returned their caresses. Come, said Psyche, enter with me my house and refresh yourselves with whatever your sister has to offer. Then taking their hands, she led them into her golden palace and committed them to the care of her numerous train of attendant voices to refresh them in her baths and at her table, and to show them all her treasures. The view of these celestial delights caused envy to enter their bosoms at seeing their young sister possessed of such state and splendor, so much exceeding their own. They asked her numberless questions, among others, what sort of a person her husband was. Psyche replied that he was a beautiful youth, who generally spent the daytime in hunting upon the mountains. The sisters, not satisfied with this reply, soon made her confess that she had never seen him. Then they proceeded to fill her mind with dark suspicions. Call to mind, they said, the Pythian oracle that declared you destined to marry a direful and tremendous monster. The inhabitants of this valley say that your husband is a terrible and monstrous serpent who nourishes you for a while with dainties that he may, by and by, devour you. Take our advice. Provide yourself with a lamp and a sharp knife, put them in concealment that your husband may not discover them, and when he is sound asleep, slip out of bed, bring forth your lamp, and see for yourself whether what they say is true or not. If it is, hesitate not to cut off the monster's head and thereby recover your liberty. Psyche resisted these persuasions as well as she could, but they did not fail to have their effect on her mind, and when her sisters were gone, Their words and her own curiosity were too strong for her to resist. So she prepared her lamp and a sharp knife and hid them out of sight of her husband. When he had fallen asleep, she silently rose and, uncovering her lamp, beheld not a hideous monster but the most beautiful and charming of the gods, with golden ringlets wandering over his snowy neck and crimson cheek, with two wings on his shoulders whiter than snow and with shining feathers like the tender blossoms of spring. As she leaned over to have a narrow view of his face, a drop of burning oil fell on the shoulder of the god, startled with which he opened his eyes and fixed them full upon her. Then, without saying one word, he spread his white wings and flew out of the window. Psyche, in vain, endeavouring to follow him, fell from the window to the ground. Cupid, beholding her as she lay in the dust, stopped his flight for an instant and said O oh, foolish psyche, is it thus you repay my love? After having disobeyed my mother's commands and made you my wife, will you think me a monster and cut off my head? But go. Return to your sisters, whose advice you seem to think preferable to mine. I inflict no other punishment on you, and will leave you for ever. Love cannot dwell with suspicion. So saying, he fled away, leaving poor Psyche prostrate on the ground, filling the place with mournful lamentations. When she had recovered some degree of composure, she looked around her, but the palace and gardens had vanished, and she found herself in the open field not far from the city where her sisters dwelt. She repaired thither, and told them the story of her misfortunes, at which, pretending to grieve, those spiteful creatures inwardly rejoiced for now, said they, he will perhaps choose one of us. With this idea, without saying a word of her intentions, each of them rose early the next morning and ascended the mountain, and having reached the top, called upon Zephyr to receive her and bear her to his lord. Then, leaping up, and not being sustained by Zephyr, fell down the precipice and was dashed to pieces. Psyche, meanwhile, wandered day and night without food or repose in search of her husband casting her eyes on a lofty mountain, having on its brow a magnificent temple, she sighed and said to herself, Perhaps my lord inhabits there, and directed her steps thither. She had no sooner entered than she saw heaps of corn, some in loose ears and some in sheaves, with mingled ears of barley. Scattered about lay sickles and rakes and all the instruments of harvest without order, as if thrown carelessly out of the weary reaper's hands, in the sultry hours of the day. This unseemly confusion Psyche put an end to, by separating and sorting everything to its proper place and kind, believing that she ought to neglect none of the gods, but endeavour by her piety to engage them all in her behalf. The holy Ceres, whose temple it was, finding her so religiously employed, thus spoke to her. O Psyche, truly worthy of our pity, Though I cannot shield you from the frowns of Venus, yet I can teach you how best to allay her displeasure. Go then and voluntarily surrender yourself to your lady and sovereign, and try by modesty and submission to win her forgiveness, and perhaps her favor will restore you the husband you have lost. Saki obeyed the commands of Ceres, and took her way to the temple of Venus, endeavoring to fortify her mind and ruminating on what she should say and how best propitiate the angry goddess, feeling that the issue was doubtful and perhaps fatal. Venus received her with angry countenance. Most undutiful and faithless of servants, said she, do you at last remember that you really have a mistress, or have you rather come to see your sick husband, yet laid up by the wound given him by his loving wife? You are so ill-favored and disagreeable, that the only way you can merit your lover must be by dint of industry and diligence. I will make trial of your housewifery. Then she ordered Psyche to be led to the storehouse of her temple, where was laid up a great quantity of wheat, barley, millet, vetches, beans, and lentils, prepared for food for her pigeons, and said, Take and separate all these grains, putting all of the same kind in a parcel by themselves. And see that you get it done before evening. Then Venus departed and left her to her task. But Psyche, in a perfect consternation of the enormous work, sat stupid and silent, without moving a finger to the inextricable heap. While she sat despairing, Cupid stirred up the little ant, a native of the fields, to take compassion on her. The leader of the ant hill, followed by whole hosts of his six-legged subjects, approached the heap, and with the utmost diligence, taking grain by grain, they separated the pile, sorting each kind to its parcel, and when it was all done, they vanished out of sight in a moment. Venus, at the approach of twilight, returned from the banquet of the gods, breathing odours and crowned with roses. Seeing the task done, she exclaimed, This is no work of yours, wicked one, but his, whom to your own and his misfortune you have enticed. So saying, she threw her a piece of black bread for her supper and went away. Next morning, Venus ordered Psyche to be called and said to her, Behold, yonder grove, which stretches along the margin of the water. There you will find sheep feeding without a shepherd, with golden, shining fleeces on their backs. Go fetch me a sample of that precious wool gathered from every one of their fleeces. Psyche obediently went to the riverside, prepared to do her best to execute the command. But the river god inspired the reeds with harmonious murmurs which seemed to say, O maiden, severely tried, tempt not the dangerous flood, nor venture among the formidable rams on the other side. For as long as they are under the influence of the rising sun, They burn with a cruel rage to destroy mortals with their sharp horns or rude teeth. But when the noontide sun has driven the cattle to the shade, and the serene spirit of the flood has lulled them through rest, you may then cross in safety, and you will find the woolly gold sticking to the bushes and the trunks of the trees. Thus, the compassionate river god gave Psyche instructions how to accomplish her task, and by observing his directions, she soon returned to Venus with her arms full of the golden fleece, but she received not the approbation of her implacable mistress, who said, I know very well that it is by none of your own doings that you have succeeded in this task, and I am not yet satisfied that you have any capacity to make yourself useful. But I have another task for you. Here, take this box and go your way to the infernal shades and give this box to Proserpine, and say, My mistress Venus desires you to send her a little of your beauty, for intending her sick son she has lost some of her own. Be not too long on your errand, for I must paint myself with it, to appear at the circle of the gods and goddesses this evening. Psyche was now satisfied that her destruction was at hand, being obliged to go with her own feet directly down to Erebus, wherefore, to make no delay of what was not to be avoided, she goes to the top of a high tower to precipitate herself headlong, thus to descend the shortest way to the shades below. But a voice from the tower said to her, Why, poor lucky girl, dost thou design to put an end to thy days in so dreadful a manner? And what cowardice makes thee sink under this last danger, who has been so miraculously supported in all thy former? Then the voice told her how, by a certain cave, she might reach the realms of Pluto, and how to avoid all the dangers of the road, to pass by Cerberus, the three-headed dog, and prevail on Charon, the ferryman, to take her across the Black River and bring her back again. But the voice added, When Proserpine has given you the box filled with her beauty, of all things this is chiefly to be observed by you that you never once open or look into the box, nor allow your curiosity to pry into the treasure of the beauty of the goddesses. Psyche, encouraged by this advice, obeyed it in all things, and taking heed to her ways, travelled safely to the kingdom of Pluto. She was admitted to the palace of Proserpine, and without accepting the seat or delicious banquet that was offered her, but contented with coarse bread for her food, she delivered her message from Venus. Presently, the box was returned to her, shut and filled with a precious commodity. Then she returned the way she came, and glad was she to come out once more into the light of day. But having gone so far successfully through her task, a longing desire seized her to examine the contents of the box. What, said she, shall I, the carrier of this divine beauty, not take the least bit to put on my cheeks to appear to more advantage in the eyes of my beloved husband, so she carefully opened the box, but found nothing there of any beauty at all but an infernal and truly stygian sleep which, being thus set free from its prison, took possession of her, and she fell down in the midst of the road without sense or motion, but Cupid, being now recovered from his wound and not able longer to bear the absence of his beloved Psyche, slipping through the smallest crack of the window of his chamber, which happened to be left open, flew to the spot where Psyche lay, and gathering up the sleep from her body, closed it again in the box, and waked Psyche with a light touch of one of his arrows. Again, said he, hast thou almost perished by the same curiosity, but now perform exactly the task imposed on you by my mother, and I will take care of the rest. Then Cupid, as swift as lightning, penetrating the heights of heaven, presented himself before Jupiter with his supplication. Jupiter lent a favoring ear, and pleaded the cause of the lovers so earnestly with Venus that he won her consent. On this, he sent Mercury to bring Psyche up to the heavenly assembly, and when she arrived, handing her a cup of ambrosia, he said, "Drink this, Psyche, and be immortal. Nor shall Cupid ever break away from the knot in which he is tied." these nuptials shall be perpetual. How Phaeton Drove the Sun Phaeton was the son of Apollo and the nymph Clymene. One day a schoolfellow laughed at the idea of his being the son of a god, and Phaeton went in rage and shame and reported it to his mother. If, said he, I am indeed of heavenly birth. Give me, mother, some proof of it, and establish my claim to the honour. Clemeny stretched forth her hands towards the skies and said, I call to witness the sun, which looks down upon us, that I have told you the truth. If I speak falsely, let this be the last time I behold his light. But it needs not much labour to go and inquire for yourself. The land whence the sun rises lies next to ours. Go and demand of him whether he will own you as a son. Phaeton heard with delight. He travelled to India, which lies directly in the regions of sunrise, and full of hope and pride, approached the goal whence his parent begins his course. The palace of the sun stood reared aloft on columns, glittering with gold and precious stones, while polished ivory formed the ceilings and silver the doors. Upon the walls, Vulcan had represented earth, sea, and skies with their inhabitants. In the sea were the nymphs, some sporting in the waves, some riding on the backs of fishes, while others sat down upon the rocks and dried their sea-green hair. The earth had its towns and forests and rivers. Over all was carved the likeness of the glorious heaven, and on the silver doors the twelve signs of the zodiac, six on each side. Clemenes' son advanced up the steep ascent and entered the halls of his father. He approached the paternal presence, but stopped at a distance, for the light was more than he could bear. Phoebus, arrayed in a purple vesture, sat on a throne which glittered as with diamonds. On his right hand and his left stood the day, the month, and the year, and at regular intervals the hours. Spring stood with her head crowned with flowers, and summer, with a garland formed of spears of ripened grain, and autumn, with his feet stained with grape juice, and icy winter, with his hair stiffened with hoarfrost. Surrounded by these attendants, the sun, with the eye that sees everything, beheld the youth dazzled with the novelty and splendor of the scene, and inquired the purpose of his errand. The youth replied, O light of the boundless world, Phoebus, my father, if you permit me to use that name, give me some proof, I beseech you, by which I may be known as yours. He ceased, and his father, laying aside the beams that shone all around his head, bade him approach, and embracing him, said, My son, you deserve not to be disowned, and I confirm what your mother has told you. To put an end to your doubts, ask what you will, the gift shall be yours. I call to witness that dreadful lake which I never saw, But which we God swear by in our most solemn engagements. Phaeton immediately asked to be permitted for one day to drive the chariot of the sun. The father repented of his promise. Thrice and four times he shook his radiant head in warning. I have spoken rashly, said he. This request only I would deny. I beg you to withdraw it. It is not a safe boon. Nor one, my Phaeton, suited to your youth and strength. Your lot is mortal, and you ask what is beyond a mortal's power. In your ignorance, you aspire to do that which not even the gods themselves may do. None but myself may drive the flaming car of day, not even Jupiter, whose terrible right arm hurls the thunderbolts. The first part of the way is steep, and such as the horses, when fresh in the morning, can hardly climb. The middle is high up in the heavens whence I myself can scarcely, without alarm, look down and behold the earth and sea stretched beneath me. The last part of the road descends rapidly and requires most careful driving. Tethys, who is waiting to receive me, often trembles for me lest I should fall headlong. Add to all this, the heaven is all the time turning round and carrying the stars with it. I have to be perpetually on my guard lest that movement which sweeps everything else along, should hurry me also away. Suppose I should lend you the chariot. What would you do? Could you keep your course while the earth was revolving under you? Perhaps you think that there are forests and cities and abodes of gods and palaces and temples on the way. On the contrary, the road is through the midst of frightful monsters. You pass by the horns of the bull in front of the archer and near the lion's jaws, and where the scorpion stretches its arms in one direction and the crab in another. Nor will you find it easy to guide those horses with their breasts full of fire that they breathe forth from their mouths and nostrils. I can scarcely govern them myself when they are unruly and resist the reins. Beware, my son, lest I be the donor of a fatal gift. Recall your request while yet you may. Do you ask me for a proof that you are sprung from my blood? I give you a proof in my fears for you. Look at my face. I would that you could look into my heart. You would there see all a father's anxiety. Finally, he continued, look round the world and choose whatever you will of what earth or sea contains most precious. Ask it and fear no refusal. This only I pray you not to urge. It is not honour but destruction you seek why do you hang round my neck and still entreat me? You shall have it if you persist. The oath is sworn and must be kept, but I beg you to choose more wisely. He ended, but the youth rejected all admonition and held to his demand. So, having resisted as long as he could, Phoebus at last led the way to where stood the lofty chariot. It was of gold, the gift of Vulcan. The axle was of gold the pole and wheels of gold, the spokes of silver. Along the seat were rows of chrysolites and diamonds which reflected the brightness of the sun. While the daring youth gazed in admiration, the early dawn threw open the purple doors of the east and showed the pathway strewn with roses. The stars withdrew, marshaled by the day star, which last of all retired also. The father, when he saw the earth beginning to glow and the moon preparing to retire, ordered the hours to harness up the horses. They obeyed and led forth the steeds from the lofty stalls and attached the reins. Then the father bathed the face of his son with a powerful ointment and made him capable of enduring the brightness of the flame. He set the rays on his head and with a foreboding sigh said, If, my son... You will in this at least heed my advice. Spare the whip and hold tight the reins. They go fast enough of their own accord. The labour is to hold them in. You are not to take the straight road directly between the five circles, but turn off to the left. Keep within the limit of the middle zone and avoid the northern and the southern alike. You will see the marks of the wheels and they will serve to guide you. And... That the skies and the earth may each receive their due share of heat. Go not too high, or you will burn the heavenly dwellings, nor too low, or you will set the earth on fire. The middle course is safest and best. And now I leave you to your chance, which I hope will plan better for you than you have done for yourself. Night is passing out of the western gates, and we can delay no longer. Take the reins, but if at last your heart fails you, and you will benefit by my advice, Stay where you are in safety, and suffer me to light and warm the earth. The agile youth sprang into the chariot, stood erect, and grasped the reins with delight, pouring out thanks to his reluctant parent. Meanwhile, the horses fill the air with their snortings and fiery breath, and stamp the ground impatiently. Now the bars are let down, and the boundless plain of the universe lies open before them. They dart forward and cleave the opposing clouds and outrun the morning breezes which started from the same eastern goal. The steed soon perceived that the load they drew was lighter than usual. And, as a ship without ballast is tossed hither and thither on the sea, so the chariot, without its accustomed weight, was dashed about as if empty. They rush headlong and leave the travelled road. Phaeton is alarmed and knows not how to guide them. Nor, if he knew, has he the power. Then, for the first time, the great and little bear were scorched with heat, and would fain, if it were possible, have plunged into the water. And the serpent which lies coiled up around the North Pole, torpid and harmless, grew warm, and with warmth felt its rage revive. When Phaeton looked down upon the earth, now spreading in vast extent beneath him, he grew pale, and his knees shook with terror. In spite of the glare all around him, the sight of his eyes grew dim. He wished he had never touched his father's horses, never learned his parentage, never prevailed in his request. He is borne along like a vessel that flies before a tempest, when the pilot can do no more. What shall he do? Much of the heavenly road is left behind, but more remains before. He turns his eyes from one direction to the other, now to the goal whence he began his course, Now to the realms of sunset, which he is not destined to reach. He loses his self command and knows not what to do, whether to draw tight the reins or throw them loose. He forgets the names of the horses. He sees with terror the monstrous forms scattered over the surface of heaven. Here the scorpion extended his two great arms with his tail and crooked claws stretching over two signs of the zodiac. When the boy beheld him, Reeking with poison and menacing with his fangs, his courage failed, and the reins fell from his hands. The horses, when they felt them loose on their backs, dashed headlong and unrestrained, went off into unknown regions of the sky, in among the stars, hurling the chariot over pathless places, now up in high heaven, now down almost to the earth. The moon saw with astonishment her brother's chariot running beneath her own, The clouds begin to smoke, and the mountaintops take fire. The fields are parched with heat. The plants wither. The trees with their leafy branches burn. The harvest is ablaze. But these are small things. Great cities perished with their walls and towers. Whole nations with their people were consumed to ashes. Then Phaeton beheld the world on fire, and felt the heat intolerable. The air he breathed was like the air of a furnace and full of burning ashes, and the smoke was of a pitchy darkness. He dashed forward he knew not whither. Then, it is believed, the Libyan desert was dried up to the condition in which it remains to this day. The nymphs of the fountains, with disheveled hair, mourned their waters, nor were the rivers safe beneath their banks. The Nile fled away and hid his head in the desert, and there it still remains, concealed. Where he used to discharge his waters through seven mouths into the sea, there seven dry channels alone remained. The earth cracked open, and through the chinks light broke into Tartarus and frightened the King of Shadows and his queen. The sea shrank up. Where before was water, it became a dry plain, and the mountains that lie beneath the waves lifted up their heads and became islands. The fishes sought the lowest depths, and the dolphins no longer ventured as usual to sport on the surface. Thrice Neptune essayed to raise his head above the surface, and thrice was driven back by the heat. Earth, surrounded as she was by waters, yet with head and shoulders bare, screening her face with her hand, looked up to heaven, and with a husky voice called on Jupiter O ruler of the gods! If I have deserved this treatment, and it is your will that I perish with fire, why withhold your thunderbolts? Let me at least fall by your hand. Is this the reward of my fertility, of my obedient service? Is it for this that I have supplied herbage for cattle, and fruits for men, and frankincense for your altars? But if I am unworthy of regard, what has my brother Ocean done to deserve such a fate? If neither of us can excite your pity, think, I pray you, of your own heaven. And behold how both the poles are smoking which sustain your palace, which must fall if they be destroyed. Atlas faints and scarce holds up his burden. If sea, earth, and heaven perish, we fall into ancient chaos. Save what yet remains to us from the devouring flame. O take thought for our deliverance in this awful moment. Thus spoke earth, and overcome with heat and thirst, could say no more. Then Jupiter, omnipotent, calling to witness all the gods, including him who lent the chariot, and showing them that all was lost unless some speedy remedy were applied, mounted the lofty tower from whence he diffuses clouds over the earth and hurls the forked lightnings. But at that time not a cloud was to be found to interpose for a screen to earth nor was a shower remaining unexhausted. He thundered, and brandishing a lightning bolt in his right hand, launched it against the charioteer, and struck him at the same moment from his seat and from existence. Phaeton, with his hair on fire, fell headlong, like a shooting star which marks the heavens with its brightness as it falls, and Eradonus, the great river, received him and cooled his burning frame. Good night.